You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 24. We're going to read the whole chapter. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? As they they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. 
They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then he told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And when they and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. There are Bibles underneath the chairs there in the brown Bibles, page eight eighty four. In the kind of reddish burgundy Bibles, it's page ten eighty five. Uh, Luke chapter 24, it's the third of the four gospel accounts of Jesus Christ's ministry and life, and uh, chapter 24 is the final chapter in Luke's gospel. Um, and as we think about the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, that, that is a crazy claim, you realize, right? That, like, that's, that's a crazy claim that someone would rise from the dead. Um, it is pretty remarkable that Christians would claim that. Um, that is a that's a tough pill to swallow, and what I find fascinating about the Gospels is the Gospels seem to be pretty honest about that. As we look at Luke chapter 24, this whole account is dripping with skepticism. It's dripping with skepticism because this is not something that happens all the time. Um, as the eyewitness testimony later comes together and Luke compiles it together, um, it is amazing that nobody makes themselves look good. Like, we had a hard time believing this. You just see this labor throughout Luke chapter 24 to believe what has clearly happened in front of them. Uh, in fact, Luke is kind of a gospel for skeptics. If you go to the beginning of Luke's gospel, he writes this in Luke 1, 1 through 4. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and have delivered to them, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So he'd heard the legends, he'd heard the stories, this remarkable story of a, of a, a Jewish man, a carpenter, who seemed to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah and then died and then rose again. Like this is just bewildering. 
And so he goes and does a massive research project. Luke is a doctor. He's a scientist. He's, a, he's someone who looks for empirical evidence. He deals in the physical world. And he goes and compiles an orderly account. Let me go and talk to the eyewitnesses. Let me try to verify these accounts. And as he does, he collects his notes and he puts them together. And then he writes to this Theophilus. Sorry, that's a tough name to say. This Theophilus. He says, I have followed these things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The reports are true. The reports are true that the most incredible thing has happened. The laws of time and space have been suspended. They have been overcome by a being that is greater than any other human being that has ever lived. And so what I want to do is just look at Luke chapter 24 with you. Hopefully you have it open in front of you. And I want to investigate this text in four sets of four, kind of a four by four here. I want to pull this chapter apart and look at how it works. How has Luke constructed it? How has this narrative come together, this eyewitness testimony to the most incredible thing ever, which is the resurrection of a human being, not just a human being, but potentially God, the supernatural event. And then knowing how it works, what effect is this intended to have? What's the argument that's being made? Let's be honest. Let's let the text say what it wants to say. It's hung around for 2,000 years. It's been believed by a lot of really intelligent people. It is hung on, and so it deserves at least our respect as a document that has endured, as a story that does have some measure of power to it because it is hung on for so long. And so at least let's give it an honest look and let it make the argument, and then we can come to whatever decision we want to come to. But it does have an audacious goal. This text does have an audacious goal. It is seeking to persuade you to believe it and to live the rest of your life with this reality at the center, that... God really did come into the world, really did die for human sin as a payment for sin, and really did rise again from the dead. Like like that actually happened is the argument that it's making. And not only is it making, uh, arguing that you should embrace that as a real historical event, but that you should actually orient your life around that. That should become your North Star. That should be your compass. This should be your center for everything that you do and believe and are. And so I'm just going to try to do the text justice and lay it out before you, and then you do what you will with it. But let's least look at it honestly. So the first set of four. First set of four is four resurrection scenes. Those are the four sets of four there. Four resurrection scenes. So in this chapter, we have verses 1 through 12. We have a scene at the empty tomb. So one location. Then we have a second location where there is Jesus walking with these two followers on the road to Emmaus a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem. Then we have a third scene, a third location, the upper room in verses 33 through 49. And then we have a mountain area uh, of Bethany, a mountain near Bethany, where Jesus gives some final instructions and then ascends. And so what's fascinating about this account is that it's not just a one-off. It's not like the resurrection is one event, but it's experienced in multiple places. If you're going to have an hallucination, If this is going to be something that is just sort of like, these guys really want to believe it and so they made it up, the fact that it's happening in four different places at different times to different people means that this is not merely just an illusion. This is not merely something that is a hallucination. The resurrection encounters are not just isolated events where you could easily explain it away, like someone saw a UFO and then like, no, this is like several uh, places, several different people. And so... 
Luke is actually constructing this in a way to, to try to remove your doubts. Like he knows there would be skepticism, and he's just addressing that, of going, no, the eyewitness accounts say that the encounters of Jesus happen in multiple places with multiple different people, and they're all saying the same thing. The second set of four is four exasperated questions. And exasperated, if you've ever been exasperated, if you have kids, you know what exasperation is like, right? Like, it's this sense of a question like, why didn't you know this? Like, you should have put these two together. Like, I told you to pick up your socks, and then you forgot to pick up your socks. Why did you not pick up your socks? There's six or seven different questions, and I just want to look at four. Four exasperated questions, which seem to be just like, why are you not getting it? Which just points again to the skepticism within the passage itself. Four exasperated questions. Look at the first one in verse chapter 5, or on verse 5, um, by the angels at the tomb. So these ladies come, these women come on the first day of the week, and they're going to honor Jesus' body. They're going to they're decorate the tomb. They're going to bring spices. They're doing a normal Jewish respect, honor uh, thing. Uh, the disciples don't even come. Like, they're just done. They're out on this thing. But these women come. They're like, we at least should honor him. And so they do. And they encounter these men who appear to be angels, verse 8. And here's what they say. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You get this exasperated question like, it is so silly of you to come to a tomb looking for a, an alive man. That's their exasperated question. And we learn something through each of these exasperated questions. They reveal a key truth that we're meant to be persuaded of in the text. And here's what they say. So this exasperated question, women, why, why are you here? Like, if you're looking for an alive man, don't go to a graveyard. He's not here. He's alive, which is kind of unfair of the angels. Like, well, this is where we buried him. Like, he was dead last time we saw him. And they ask this exasperated question going, why are you looking for him here? And then they reveal this truth. Verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. He did. He called it. Jesus called his own shot. He called, he called it. He had been teaching for quite some time that he would suffer and die. They just weren't paying attention. They were focused on other things. And then when they were reminded of this truth, they went, yeah, actually, Jesus did claim to do this, which is a ridiculous thing to claim unless you can pull it off. It's a ridiculous thing to claim that if you want to change the world, if you want to redeem the world, if you want people to believe and follow you, to claim that, okay, only follow me if you're going to see me raised from the dead. And then he does it. And they go, oh, yeah. They weren't thinking of it in the time. They were oh, so overcome with their grief. They were so filled with skepticism. Like, this is crazy that anyone would rise from the dead. And then they remembered, oh, yeah, he called it. Over 11 times we have recorded in the gospel where he predicts his own resurrection. So this first exasperated question is that actually the resurrection was part of the plan to begin with. This was actually part of why Jesus came, was to die and rise again. The incredibleness, the... Uh, supernaturalness of it was actually part of the plan to sort of just over the top. This was going to be a supernatural event that Jesus himself called. Exasperated question number two is by Clopas or Cleopas or however you pronounce it on the road. So the women run back and they report to the rest of the disciples saying, hey, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but the tomb's empty and some people told us that he's raised from the dead. And it says in the text that they thought these women were just making stuff up. Foolish girls making up things. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe them, I should say. 
And so there's these two disciples, and they're walking on the road to Emmaus, which means they're not convinced that he's raised from the dead. If he's raised from the dead, they'd want to stay in Jerusalem. They'd want a chance to see him. They'd want a chance to be with him. But they obviously don't because they're heading back home. they got stuff to do. So they're walking back home, but they're just mind-blown by this whole experience. Like, it's just been a crazy weekend, a crazy weekend of crucifixions and burials and earthquakes and the temple being torn apart and all of this crazy stuff happening. So they're walking home, kind of processing all that they've been through with this whole Jesus experience. And uh, verse 18, then one of them, a man starts to appear and walk alongside them. And we know the narrator, narrator already tells us that it's Jesus, but Jesus in some sense disguises himself. He's not recognizable to them, at least immediately. Don't know for, if he's wearing those glasses with the little mustache or something, I don't know. No, not that. But he's not immediately recognizable. They're not expecting to encounter Jesus. They're just not expecting it. And so then when he begins to engage in conversation with them, they don't immediately recognize him. Verse 18, then one of them named Clopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So you get this second exasperated question because this man doesn't seem to know anything. Hey, what are you guys up to? What's been going on? And they're like, have you not Have you not noticed what happened in Jerusalem this weekend? Like, this is the weirdest weekend ever. We had a solar eclipse for three days. We had an earthquake. Maybe you heard about this Jesus that came in on a donkey and he upset the temple. And there was these religious trials and there was these political trials. Man, everything was just crazy. And this man died. And it was such a remarkable death, but he's dead. And now we're hearing that perhaps he's been raised from the dead. Like, where have you been? Have you been under a rock? What have you been doing? And Jesus just plays along, just plays along, just to sort of draw out what it is that they understand about the plan of God. And look at verses 19 through 24. They then instruct Jesus on what Jesus was all about. So this is their understanding. This is just the common public perception of what has happened. They said, he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed. Okay, a real historical person, Jesus from Nazareth. Not a made-up person, not a legend, a real physical person who had a hometown and a family, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. We knew that he spoke for God. We knew that he did miraculous things before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. He was so persuasive. He was so powerful that our religious leaders thought he was a threat a threat to our religion, a threat to our power, and so they put him to death. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he would be the one that would redeem Israel. So it's pretty clear that Jesus was persuading people that he at least claimed to be the Messiah, the one who would restore Israel, the one who would be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the one who would deliver God's people from Roman oppression. And we had hoped that he would come to redeem Israel, and you hear in that a little bit of sadness of like, we'd hoped. We'd hope that this was the deal, but he's dead. He's dead, he's gone, it's over. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They came at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So again, it's, it's dripping with skepticism. Like, they get it. It, There is no doubt who Jesus was. He was not just a good teacher. He was not just a a weirdo in the desert. Like, he was enough of a threat that the Roman officials and the religious officials thought he needed to die. His claim to be a king was strong enough 
that people really did. They, there was no middle ground on Jesus. You were either in or you were out. You were either willing to give up your life to follow him or you were wanting to take his life. Jesus left no middle ground. He was either the king, God, or you needed to put him to death. He's the most dangerous man in the world. And he was put to death. And so these people seemed, he seemed to be the Messiah. He seemed to match up. There's no middle ground. He either was the Messiah and it failed. He was a total sham. There's no good teacher nonsense. He got killed for claiming to be a king and for being a Messiah. So there's no doubt about Jesus. There's no middle ground at all. This is exasperated question number two of like Jesus, like this man, this mystery man who is Jesus, who's asking him questions going, do you not know how obvious Jesus is? Like, do you not know how obvious this whole thing has been? And it's over. It's just all over. It's done. He's dead. It's over. Let's go home. Let's go back to Emmaus. Let's pick up our lives. Let's move on. And then we get exasperated question number three. Jesus responds to them. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, which is a great way to enter into a conversation. (laughs) Someone tells you a little bit about how their weekend was and just lay into that. Oh, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, exclamation part. Jesus is exasperated at the fact that, man, you are so close. You have so many of the pieces put together, but you haven't quite put all the pieces together yet. And was it not necessary, he said, from your own scriptures, that Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? God had been revealing his will to people for centuries, time and time again through prophets, through all these different people, down through history, not just from one man, but from several people, putting it all together to point to the fact that the Messiah would come, and he didn't come to overthrow Rome and set up a political kingdom. He came to deliver you from your sins by being an atonement on the cross and then rising again to prove that it was real, that it was true, that it was obvious. Like, now it's happening and you can't see it. And so Jesus, in his exasperation, then gives them this truth, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament's about me. Old Testament ceremonial law, that's about me. Everything the prophets were talking about, they were talking about me. Everything is funneling into this one moment, this one weekend of death and resurrection, and you're on this walk, and you're standing right in front of it, and you miss it. you're missing it. You're missing it. You really can't blame them for missing it. Rising from the dead doesn't happen very often. It's incredible. They're full of skepticism, and Jesus goes, hey, you should have known this. This should not have surprised you. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, termined, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, particularly that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory. If in your own time you got some, an opportunity to read Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53 is 700 years before Jesus and it predicts with eerie accuracy the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and exactly what it means and a resurrection. 700 years this was predicted. There's many other passages, but Isaiah 53 is 12 verses that will just blow your mind that you go, this was clearly written after Jesus, but no, it's clearly written 700 years before Jesus describing perfectly what the Messiah came to do. And these people on the road to Emmaus cannot remember Isaiah 53. And Jesus goes, this was the plan all along. Exasperated question number four. So anyway, they continue on the road. I should say before I get to number four, they continue on the road. Jesus continues to teach them the Old Testament. This is one of my favorite parts in all of the Bible. I would love to have been on that seven-mile hike with Jesus. As he taught me the Bible, the resurrected Jesus Christ teaching me the Bible and how it all points to him. Love that. I love that. I wish if I could go back in time, I would go back and join that hike 
and just hear the resurrected Jesus Christ on Resurrection Sunday teaching me how the entire Old Testament points to him, is fulfilled in him. And they talk about their eyes being opened and they talk about their hearts burning within them when Jesus taught them the scriptures. Just a marvelous thing. They're transformed from skeptics to believers because of what Jesus taught them from the scriptures. Then they run back. They immediately run back once they recognize it's Jesus. They run back and they got to give a report. The women weren't lying. The women weren't crazy. We thought they were crazy. But we actually have an account. So they run. They run the seven miles back to get with the other disciples and to encourage them, to let them know we had an encounter with Jesus. And then Jesus actually shows up in the room with them. They're gathering up in the upper room because they're scared. They're, they're scared. They don't know what to do. Jesus has just been crucified. They're probably next. And so they're scared. They're, they're too scared to go to the tomb. Only a couple of them did. They're gathered up in this upper room and they're just hearing all of these weird things and they're not believing it. And then Jesus appears. And here he says in verse 38, Jesus in the upper room with these disciples says, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Well, because <laughs> resurrections are weird. And Jesus goes, and then he gives them these words in verses 39 through 43. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. And Jesus just in his kindness goes, touch. It's a, it's a physical body. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy, what a weird phrase, disbelieved for joy. They're not persuaded yet, but also they're elated at the same time. The person that they had given their whole life for, the person that they had most trusted in, and yet now they're, they're in this weird mixed feeling like this is glorious. If he really is raised, then everything changes. This changes everything, and yet they still are disbelieving. <laughs> this, this mixed emotion of disbelieving for joy, it says. While they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. Which is a weird detail, unless you're already anticipating the question of like, well, maybe it was a hallucination, maybe it was just a spiritual thing, maybe they were just making it up. But the fact that he eats a fish in front of them is persuasive to them that he's real, he's physical. He ate some food in front of us. We tossed a fish to him and he caught it. Ghosts can't do that, right? Spirits can't do that. Hallucinations can't do that. And so even Jesus himself is realizing how incredible this claim is and is doing what he, all that he can here to persuade them. I am legit physically resurrected from the dead. Jesus and Luke, the author, seem to be anticipating your objections. Touch me. Let me eat a fish in front of you. There's no doubt what Luke is communicating. There is a bodily, physical resurrection of a human being that is being communicated here. The, the narrative is going out of its way to not be misunderstood that Christianity is not about some myth or legend, but a real historical person who literally rose from the dead. As crazy as that might be to believe. Which then brings me to our third of four sets of four. And here I want to give you four reasons to believe. I could come up with, I think I came up with over a dozen, but let me just give you four that I think are from the text. We're talking about the rarest of rare encounters. Skepticism and doubts are understandable. And as you ponder what I'm saying, let me give you four uh, reasons this account is to be considered authentic, accurate, and compels us to believe and embrace its implications. In fact, that's what Luke said in chapter one, is that I know that you're skeptical, Theophilus, of this account. So I went and did a huge research project and I want you to have confidence that what you heard is accurate. 
It is accurate. It is clear. It is accurate. Whether you choose to believe it, embrace it, orient your life around it, that's up to you. But I want you to know that the, the testimony is accurate. It is clear. It is historically verifiable. And so here are the four reasons. Number one, Jesus called it. There's no doubt that he called it. He predicted and accomplished his own resurrection. He called his own shot. There you go. Called his own shot. I'm going to hit a home run right there and then does it, right? Jesus does the ultimate call it. I will die and I will rise again. If I don't, move on with your lives. Do not follow me. Do not believe me. Do not trust me. But if I pull it off, then I ask you to follow me with everything you have. That's what Jesus put on the line. That's his terms. And he calls it. He predicted it, and then he accomplished it. Number two, women are the first witnesses. This is really remarkable because in that culture in those days, women were not consider, considered credible witnesses. You go to a trial, women are not allowed to participate. They're not allowed to give any testimony. They're considered almost inherently dishonest and unreliable. So that's unfair, but that is what part of what makes this narrative so persuasive is that if you were making this up, you would not pick women to be the first witnesses. You wouldn't do it. So if these disciples are making it up, they would make themselves look better by not doubting all the time, and they would not have had it been women that go to the tomb first. This actually smells of authenticity because culturally this would be a stupid way to begin your movement. This would be a bad way to begin your movement if you're trying to persuade people according to the culture of the day, you would not do this. And they go, we don't care whether you're persuaded or not. We're just here to give testimony to the truth. And the truth is, this is how it happened. These are the women who got to be the very first ones to witness the resurrection and to proclaim the gospel to people. So that actually is a mark in favor that I think we often miss when we read these stories. Women being the first witnesses is, is totally surprising if it's made up, but if it's accurate and true, then, um, then I think that's actually a reason to think that it's authentic, that it's true, that's true testimony. Number three, the Old Testament prophesied it. Forty different authors over 1,500 years, and there's more than 300 prophecies about a Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, they didn't get together and coordinate this. You try to coordinate something with someone a thousand years from now. You write something down and then hope that someone a thousand years from now who might never have read it can coordinate that. The, the scriptures are not just one book. They're a library of books. It's 66 different books written by 40 different authors from different backgrounds, different education levels, and they're all writing. They're all writing in this way across time. Uh, every other religion comes kind of from one main source, and then people build on that one source. This is a confluence of several sources. So the fact that you could get all of these people to tell one coherent story gives evidence that there is a divine author behind this. And this divine author throughout the centuries embedded prophecies about the Messiah, over 300 of them, so that it would just be un deniable that when the one comes who can fulfill these prophecies, it was clearly God did this. God did this. One mathematician did the math on this. What are the probabilities? Let's just, let's just make this scientific. Let's make this mathematic. He did the odds. Peter Stoner, chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College, he ran the math. The odds of those 300 prophecies taking eight of the most specific ones and saying the odds of them all coming together and be fulfilled by one person, what are the odds? That it's just 8 out of 300. You miss. On 292, you get 8. You get 8 right for them to all happen in the same person. 
what are the odds that would happen? And it's 1 in 10 to the 17th power that you could get 8 of them, which is about what? If you got 3% of them right, roughly, it would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And here's a quote. Suppose that we take 1 to the 17th power of silver dollars, so 10 followed by 17 zeros, and lay them on the face of Texas. Texas is a big place. It thinks it's a country. Maybe it is. 10 times 17 to the, uh, 10 to the 17th power, silver dollars, lay them over the face of Texas. They would cover the entire state two feet deep in silver dollars. Now, mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass up thoroughly all over the whole state. Blindfold one man, give him as much time and gas that he needs to travel as far as he wishes, and then to blindly pick up one silver dollar, and for that to be the one that you marked, that's the chance of eight prophecies coming together in one man. Just the same chance that the prophets would have of writing these eight prophecies centuries before and having them all come true in one man from their day to the present time, provided that they wrote using their own wisdom. So, so there you go. So the Old Testament points to Christ. He fulfills far more than eight of them. You got actually try to do the math, it just gets crazy. As if that, that's, that's the small level, eight of them coming together, that's the math of the odds of them coming together historically in one person, and he fulfills all of them. And I think it's fascinating that to alleviate the skepticism of the people, when he walks along the road, he takes them to the Old Testament and walks them through it. When he wants to persuade them of his resurrection, he doesn't do a bunch of miracles. He doesn't then get into the geology or the age of the earth. He doesn't get into uh, astronomy or biology or philosophy. He doesn't get even to apologetics, but goes to the scriptures. He goes to the Old Testament and begins to tell them the stories again and going, that's about me, that's about me, that's about me. And that's what persuaded them. Rational, um, I should say scientific arguments, intellectual questions, those are important. But what persuaded them was the scriptures. What persuaded them was the scriptures. There's good arguments, there's good counter-arguments to all of those things. There's all kinds of mysteries and questions, and we don't have answers to all of them. We have answers to some of them, but it's fascinating that when Jesus wants to persuade them that he's really risen from the dead, he doesn't go to any of those. He goes, let's go through the Old Testament again. Let's go through our Bible. And then they were transformed. They began to believe. And then number four, fearful, doubting followers were transformed. So this is reason number four to believe. First, Jesus called it. Two, women are the first witnesses. Number three, the Old Testament prophesied it in a way that's just astronomically improbable that they could just pull this off by accident. And then number four, the fearful, doubting followers are transformed. Again, there's skepticism throughout the whole chapter. There isn't anyone in this whole narrative that goes, I knew it. Nobody. Nobody expected this. Nobody predicted this. Nobody knew this was going to happen. There isn't anyone in any of the gospel accounts that all of a sudden goes, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I bet $50,000 on it in, in Vegas, and now I'm rich. Nobody knew this was coming. Nobody knew this. Nobody believes that the resurrection would happen. Nobody. They bailed on Jesus even before his crucifixion. And then let me just recount to you what happens to these men afterwards. Let's just talk about just the disciples. There's many others that have stories like this. But let me just recount to you what history tells us about what happened to those that followed Jesus. And did they, were they transformed from doubting followers? And they were. Matthew 
The Apostle Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia. He was killed by a sword. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, after being dragged by horses through the streets. Luke was hanged for his testimony about the resurrection. The Apostle John was boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil, but survived. He was then sentenced to the mines on the prison island of Patmos to do hard labor, and he died an old man. He's actually the only apostle that dies naturally. But it's not for lack of trying. He just died without being killed, right? (laughs) He went through the entire process. He just survived it for his testimony about the resurrection. Peter, because of his testimony about the resurrection, was crucified upside upside down on an X-shaped cross. He told his tormentors that he felt unworthy to die in the same way that Christ Jesus had died. James was thrown over a hundred feet down off the south side of the pinnacle of the temple. He survived the fall, and so his enemies beat him to death with a fuller's club because he believed the resurrection. James, the son of Jebedee, the other James, was beheaded at Jerusalem. A Roman officer who guarded James watched amazed as James defended his faith at his trial. Later, the officer walked beside James to the place of execution. Overcome by crucifixion, he declared his new faith in the judge and knelt beside James to accept his own beheading. So his own testimony and willing to die for his testimony about the resurrection led one of his guards to also accept execution uh, for the resurrection. Bartholomew, a.k.a. Nathaniel, he was a missionary to Asia because of his belief in the resurrection, present-day Turkey. He was martyred for preaching the resurrection in Armenia, where he was flayed to death by a whip just whipped until he bled to death, torn apart with a whip. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Patras, Greece. After being whipped severely by seven soldiers, they tied his body to the cross with cords to prolong his agony. His followers reported when he was led towards the cross, Andrew saluted it in these words, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it. So he considered it an honor to die in the same way that Christ died. He continued to preach to his tormentors for two days until he finally died. It took him two days to die, and he just kept preaching resurrection. Thomas, he was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionary trips. Jude, he was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Matthias, who has replaced the traitor Judas, he was stoned and then beheaded. And then the apostle Paul was tortured. Now he was one who persecuted those who believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And God transformed him to the point that he was willing to be tortured and beheaded by Emperor Nero in A.D. 67. Paul endured a lengthy imprisonment, which allowed him to write many of the epistles to the churches that formed much of the New Testament, which is all based on the resurrection. So, these fearful, doubting people who wouldn't even go to his tomb because they're so ashamed, they're so fearful, are now every single one of them to the last willing to die brutal deaths for this. How do you explain that? They were convinced it was true. This Jesus thing was dead. When Jesus was put into that tomb on Friday night, it was over. Some ladies will bring some spices and flowers, but that's it. That's all that's left of the Jesus movement. Not even the disciples have enough interest to go and pay respects. This thing is over in Luke chapter 23. It is over. And everybody knows it. But now, 2,000 years later, it's the largest religion in the world. It's the most transformative movement in history. Jesus is the most famous person who ever lived. And how is this possible? It's not possible if it's an illusion. It's not possible if it's a hallucination. It's not possible if it's a hoax, that the disciples just made it up. All of them went to their deaths. You don't go to your death for a hoax. It's not a myth. 
They believed it was true. They could name names, and they went to their death for it. You don't go to your death for any of these things. You don't go to your death for an illusion or a hallucination or a hoax or a myth. But if Jesus rose from the dead, and he himself promises resurrection and eternal life to all who trust in him, then going to your death for his sake makes all the sense in the world. Because if you can be resurrected, you have no fear of death. Right? That's what they believe. They're willing to go to their death because they have seen a resurrection and they believe that they will get to join in one so they can happily go to their death because it's not the end. And they all believe that. They all concluded that. Not one of them defected. And that's what every single one of his followers were not only willing to do, but they actually did it with joy and confidence and no regret. There isn't any one of these witnesses of the resurrection that recanted, that said we made it up, and did not go to their death with joy for it. How do you explain that? How do you explain that unless it happened? How do you explain the uniform transformation with no exceptions unless Luke 24 is reliable, verifiable, be willing to die for it history? I I don't know how to explain that. I do know that it's an incredible thing to believe. It's an incredible call to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But these are just a few reasons why I think that the Luke account is is persuasive, that perhaps it is true. And so with that, four action steps to consider. Thanks for hanging in there with me here. Let me give you four action steps to consider. What, What should you do with this? Here's one. One is pick up something from our resource table back there or maybe one of our Bibles and give the message of Jesus a second look. Give it an honest look. There's no questioning the fact that it has had an impact in history. And that's at least worth knowing about. It's at least worth considering honestly whether or not this thing is real, because it clearly has power. There's no question. You just cannot explain world history without thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Don't play around the edges. Don't just lean on whatever you grew up hearing or TV or whatever. (laughs) Those are not good sources to try to get an accurate understanding of what this says. Even other Christians are not always an accurate representation of what this message is. Go to the scriptures. Find a good resource. Preferably the Bible. And take an honest look for yourself. At least be honest. Give an honest look to it. Number two, attend the gathering of this church or some other church that preaches the Bible regularly. Not just a bunch of self-help things, not a bunch of things that just make you feel good, but explaining from the scriptures like Jesus did with his own disciples who were not believing the resurrection. And what he did was he systematically walked them through the scriptures saying, this is about me. Find yourself a church, this would be a good one, where they will do that. They will walk you through the scriptures and show you how it points to Christ and then leave it in your hands to follow him for yourself. Right here at this church, we teach Christ from all the scriptures. We've been going through Genesis, and we've talked about Jesus in every single chapter. 45 sermons, all of them about Jesus from the very first book of the Bible. We teach Christ from all the scriptures. That burning, passionate heart that the disciples described in Luke chapter 24 can be yours if you'll engage in the life of a church like that and engage the scriptures in that way. Number three, ask someone to pray for you and maybe even offer to pray for someone else. Everyone in here has something. That's what I've learned as a pastor and just a human being. Everybody has something that they're dealing with. Everyone is broken in some way. Everyone has regrets, a fear, a tragedy, a sin, a regret, a scar, something. Everybody does. So whether, where you're at on this journey of faith, whether or not you buy into all this or not yet, it can't hurt to pray. 
life's too hard to go it alone. And if there really is a God and He really is like this towards sinners, really is like this towards the struggling, then it can only help to call for help and to seek the help of one another. That's what a church community is for. The gospel of Jesus Christ is only for sinners. Righteous people need not apply. It's only for sinners. So the only prerequisite to receiving the gospel is admitting that you're a sinner and you need some help and maybe even some divine help through Jesus Christ. The church is only for sinners. If you've not screwed up or don't have scars or don't have sinned against others or sinned, had been sinned against yourself, then you don't need church. Go do something else. But if you need some help, you feel the scars, you feel the sin, and we all do, then this is a place where you can get prayer. Pray with and for someone. And then fourth, right here, right now, maybe, just walking through the Scriptures today, you've been convinced that maybe you need to reach out to this God. Maybe you've been dragging your feet or you're skeptical or you're doubtful. Join the club. (laughs) Everyone in the Bible is skeptical of this. The disciples didn't believe this at first. So you're in good company. You're qualified. But take a moment in your heart before God and confess that. Ask for faith. If you've claimed to believe in this resurrection, but you've been apathetic or distracted or whatever, that makes no sense. It makes no sense to be lukewarm about this. It makes no sense that if a man rose from the dead and can transform people to be lukewarm about it. So maybe you're a believer here and you need to just be honest about the fact, wait, 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 wait. If this is real, this changes everything. This changes how I spend my money. This changes how I parent. This changes how I do my job. Like, think those things through and align your life accordingly. Admit those things. Put a flag in the ground to change direction today. April 17th, 2022, the resurrection gripped me. My heart burned and I was different. All of a sudden, I had faith where I didn't have faith before. You've seen via baptism today that claim that the resurrection has gripped me and I belong to this Jesus who rose from the dead. I'm trusting in him. So I would encourage us to quit playing games, to deal with our own hypocrisy, to deal with our doubts, to give it an honest look, and let's just see what happens when a life, an individual life or a church becomes gripped by the resurrection of Jesus. I know it sounds crazy, and yet it has power. That's exactly where God located that supernatural power, is trusting in the death and resurrection of the Son of God. So let me just give you a moment to bow your heads. And in silence right now, thanks for listening to this, especially those of you that maybe are a little skeptical. I really appreciate it. I don't take for granted the fact that you would be here and that you would listen to a message that challenges you in this way and maybe sounds crazy. I really appreciate your respectfulness in that. But now, maybe there's an opportunity. Maybe someone in here is having their heart stirred to go, I had never thought about this before. This had never meant so much to me before. And I just want to give you an opportunity right now to express that to God or to to wrestle with that internally. Let's just take a moment to do that now. We just uh, ask that you would open our eyes to the things that we hadn't noticed before. Maybe remove from our thoughts some of the perceptions that we used to have about what Christianity claims. Maybe we've had someone misrepresent Christ to us. Maybe we've been taught false things. And I pray, God, just through the purity, the clarity of Luke chapter 24, we would um, 
come to see what the Bible is really claiming that Christianity is all about. And that skepticism and doubts are normal, natural. Everyone in here was skeptical of this claim until they encountered Christ. And we pray that now maybe there would be some now through the word that would be seeing Jesus for themselves, would be seeing through these eyewitness accounts, through these people that were willing to go to their own brutal deaths and based on their testimony, be willing to take a step towards Christ. So we pray, God, that you would help us to confess our sins, to repent of them, and to put our trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that there is a good God behind all of this, and that he has been orchestrating all of these things, maybe even orchestrating the people in this room to hear the words that were spoken today, that they might be brought into a relationship with God. So, Lord, we we pray that you would meet each person wherever they are, and whatever next step needs to happen, we pray that you would help them to take it and help us to do that together, to encourage each other, to give each other grace. to encourage one another, and we pray, God, that you would uh, draw many hearts to you. I pray for those of us that are believers that we would sink our roots just all that much more deeply into these truths so that our lives would then bear more fruit because of the resurrection, that that would be more at the center of who we are and the center of our confidence, that we would have joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control, these fruits of the Spirit, because the resurrection is real, it's true. And help us to be willing to be bold about um, letting others know about it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing a song to the King of Kings. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.